Welcome to the Rumble Podcast. Here at Rumble, we are a catalyst and a movement that exists to reach men, connect them to Jesus, and equip them to live as kingdom men. In this episode, we're going to our 2021 regular Joe's Conference. This takes place every year in November, and our theme is based around Acts 4.13, how the people looked at Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were regular Joes, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. We want you to sit back, relax, and let this speak to your heart. Just a little bit about me. I worked for over 30 years in social services, in family and childcare and was responsible in Causeway for the family and childcare program when I took early retirement. So my experiences in dealing with all the multitude of ways that families break down and people scramble to try and help patch bits together. Um, and what I find is all the things that I met in social services I've met now in the church. In 2004, uh, I took early retirement to set up Family Spectrum, so I've been going for, what, 17 and a half years, something like that, <clears throat> and still going. Um, the thing that triggered that was when I realized that in the Triangle area, up around where I live in Korean, there were 13 churches that had or had recently had a child sex offender in the congregation. Some of the churches knew, some of them didn't know, and at that stage, uh, we weren't able to alert them necessarily. It was the responsibility of the police to do that. And just to feel the vulnerability of the church and to know it's the enemy's intention to destroy the church and to destroy family, just that was the final tipping point for me to decide to do what I do. I have written a couple of books and they're available here. Fit for Purpose, The Church Dealing with Child Sexual Abuse from a Biblical Perspective. And the one that got me here today, I do not know how I got here today, but somebody passed a copy to Spud about a month and a half ago, and he rang me and said, will you do a seminar on this? That's why I'm here. The Loss and Restoration of Fatherhood. And that's a large theme right throughout Scripture. But um, we will be looking at one of the main planks of that uh, this afternoon. If you want to know a little bit more about us, there's a leaflet, please take one. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can we pray? Lord, this is um, an opportunity. It's a meeting of a unique group of people that may never be together again. And you have something specific to say to us. But I ask you to edit my thoughts and my words for this group of men. And also that you will give us ears to hear what you're saying to us in all of this. As we consider how hearts of fathers turn to their children. So help us, Father. Give us revelation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> I want to start by reading the last two verses of the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, and you'll need two fingers just. Somebody's talking about Derek Prince at lunchtime and how many fingers you need it to, if you're listening to him. You only need two fingers. Um, serious words at the end of the Old Testament. Behold, it's God speaking through Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Already sounds serious, doesn't it? And then at the start of Luke and Luke 1, 
which actually is the next chronological event that's new in the whole of the biblical history. Um, it's the prophetic word that the angel brought to Zechariah in the temple. And it's the first new thing in the New Testament. And just let me explain that. In John's gospel, you have, starting with the creation, the beginning was the word and so forth. But that is referred to in the Old Testament. In Matthew's gospel, you start with the lineage from Adam right down to Jesus Christ. But all of that's from the Old Testament that then jumps into the birth of Jesus. In Mark's gospel, it starts with the appearing of the adult John the Baptist. But in Luke's gospel, we have, we're back before the birth of John the Baptist. So it's the first new material in the New Testament record and follows directly on from the last two verses of Malachi. And that's not just the proximity in time, it's actually the content. I want to read verses 16 and 17 of first, of first chapter, sorry. And the angel is prophesying to Zechariah about his son that he's going to call John. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he, John, will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The content's very similar. There's the reference to Elijah. Elijah will come at the end of Malachi. John was coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus says later on in the Gospels, Elijah, John is Elijah if you're willing to receive it, which I think we should. So there's a link in personnel and there's a link in content. The purpose of John coming was to turn the hearts, or if Elijah coming, was to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Now, at some point, I'm going to say a wee bit about that, and then I'm going to enlist the help of some of you to try and show you the dynamic of what's happening here. This is located, as Malachi says, just before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Some versions say the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I understand that to be the final judgment. I understand it to be a very, very serious day. And in the period just before the final judgment, the situation in society is that the father's hearts are turned away from the children in great measure, and the children's hearts are turned away from the fathers. Okay? And the reason for that was because God was sending Elijah to turn them toward each other. So they must have been turned away. So you're talking about this location, disconnection between the generations <clears throat> as the last pre-final day judgment um, description of society. Sounds quite modern, up to date. I have to say it has happened in severe forms at different periods in history, not just ours. So there might be many preliminary tries at this. Um, the difference between the two passages is that the Old Testament passage is a warning of judgment, lest I, that is God, comes and smites the land with a curse. Whereas in the prophecy concerning John the Baptist is that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children to prepare the people for the Lord. In other words, there's a hint of possible national renewal and return to God. So one's about judgment if we don't turn, if the world doesn't turn. The other is about promise of renewal if we do, if this ministry succeeds. <coughs> I want us to, in a minute, try and picture that happening. Judgment being warned about, Mercy being held up as a possibility. 
The word that's translated land in some of the versions is translated the earth, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse which widens out the whole meaning of this verse uh, even further. And the purpose, God wants to uh, avoid having to curse the land. In Hebrew and in English, the last word in the Old Testament is harem, curse. Interesting. It ends on a very serious note. It means total destruction. You'll know the story of Achan, who hid some of the, the loot from Ai in his tent. That loot was harem. It was devoted to destruction. And he hid it, and he experienced harem and his family. It's a serious thing, this word harem, C-H-E-R-E-M, means cursed to destruction. How do you break a curse like that? We've had to work with people who've been involved in the occult and brought themselves under a curse, different sorts of curses. And we've seen the Lord deliver those people. People are also brought under a curse by negative parenting. You know, being told that you're a wee bee all your life. The parents should not be surprised if they are a big bee when they grow up, if you understand what I'm saying. You speak something into your children which can be negative and should be positive, should be faith-building. Not all parents do it. I'm reminded of um, a situation where I was chairing a case conference in social services with a teenage girl, and her parents were both there, as were a number of other professionals. And the mother in the case conference said, if I was standing beside, speaking to her daughter, beside your open grave, I would be weeping. But they would not be tears of sorrow. They would be tears of joy. That's absolutely horrendous that someone would say such a thing to their daughter. That has the powerful effect of a curse. A thing like that can rest in somebody for a long, long time. <clears throat> The more positive thing is that if the hearts of the fathers are turned to the children, and vice versa by inference, it prepares the people for the Lord. There's a something about renewal in the family. It's linked to a spiritual renewal in the nation. Certainly, people who come to faith ought to have a renewed interest in their responsibilities in the family. That stands to sense. I believe it also, and I've seen it happen the other way around. People who, for some reason, take on a sense of responsibility because they recognize their responsibility as a father, actually find themselves opening up to the need for help, the need for guidance, the need for uh, support and all the rest of it. And it can open them up spiritually. Now I want us to try and picture it. So I want to know, is there a father and a son here? No? If not, I'm going to have to pick two. Would you be a son for me, please? Yeah. You just need to come out the front. You don't have to learn any lines or anything. <laughs> okay, I want you to stand over here. And I want you to fold your hands like that and stand like that, okay? Would you be the father? Thank you. This is visual. Try and visualize something. You're standing here like that. You're turned away from your son. He's turned away from you. Does that make that sense? Okay. Anybody single? No single people? No. One? I need you. <laughs> Good man. And the tallest person in the house? <laughs> I want you to stand in that chair. Okay. Now, I want you to stand that way and up in the chair. Now, we're going to revisit what we've read. Okay. God is going to send Elijah the prophet, who was single, as was John the Baptist, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of children to the fathers. You see the different parties that we're trying to picture? The first thing that happens is what? Who's moved first? Pardon? Yes. Father's heart is turned. If this is going to change, it's the father's hearts, 
Many of you are fathers. Guys, this is speaking to us. It doesn't matter the age of your children, young or old. You could be 80. You may have a son. Your heart may need to turn to him in some way. Father's heart turns. Somehow that triggers the possibility of a response. Not inevitable, not in every case, but it opens up the possibility of a response. Now, the importance about this is, if this doesn't happen, the nation has the potential to go under God's curse. How do you break God's curse? By what authority or by what power are you going to break a curse that God puts on a nation? It's not possible, guys. There is no one greater than he by whom we can annul such a curse. This is a very serious event, which God feels forced into if the hearts of the parents, fathers, are turned away from the sons, and the sons are turned away from the fathers. Pretty much like is true of the case in Western civilization now. So when we start, fathers are turned away. It's interesting in the book of Malachi that this breakdown in the family between fathers and sons is not the first breakdown that Malachi touches on. That's in the end of chapter 4. Listen to what it says in chapter 2. This again you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the off your offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. And you ask, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, has not the one God made and sustained for us the spirit of life? That particular sentence is very complex to translate, apparently. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. There's a lot of different translations of it. But going on, and what does he desire? Godly offspring. Not offspring that are running rebellious in the streets. Godly offspring is what God desires. And he's linking it to unfaithfulness in the marriage covenant, opening up the door to rebelliousness in the next generation. Okay? And the loss of relationship between fathers and sons, not parents and sons, fathers and sons, flows from that the breakdown of faithfulness in the family, very often. So take heed to yourselves, and let none be faithless to the wife of his youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and covering one's garment with violence, domestic violence, as I understand it, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves, and do not be faithless. In other words, behind the alienation of the generations, Malachi has previously addressed the breakdown of covenant marriage. He mentions faithfulness, unfaithfulness, divorce, and domestic violence. All of those things, folks, are rampant in our society. All of those things are rampant in the church in two ways. One is people are being found and brought into the kingdom who've gone through those experiences, which is glorious. And the other is that people who are in the church and are supposed to know and love the Lord and be disciples are actually following the pattern of the world. That's not so glorious. Serious situation. That, with regard to unfaithfulness and domestic violence, is not the start of the matter. Because if you go to the very start of Malachi, where it starts off, verse 6 of chapter 1, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? This is God speaking. You guys, you know, you're going through your religious whatever, but where's the honor of God in the middle of it all? The heart honor of God. You priests who despise my name, where's my fear? So even the leadership actually did not have intimacy with God. They were described as despising the name of God, the leaders. Do you think this is overstating it? 
I don't think it's overstating it. Let me give you a statistic. I have dealt with over or about 40 Christian leaders who have abused children. Two or three of them were not sexual abuse. The rest all were. And that is largely in Northern Ireland. That's over many years in work and outside of work. It's hushed over. And you also have leaders breaking up in their marriage. I'm not saying to condemn. I'm saying, guys, we are in a terrible state. God wants to do something about it. That is the good news. Even if the father's a good father, according to the parable that Jesus told in Luke 15, whose son said, Dad, I wish you were dead so I'd get your cash. Please move out of the way. Give me the money. I want to go. Have a good time to myself. And the father gives it to him. And true enough, he goes and has a good time to himself and squanders his money all over the place on prostitutes and whatever people spend their money on until he ends up eating with the pigs. He decides then to turn home. Why? We find that as he trudges in the distance towards home, the first person to see him is who? The father. Why is the father the first person to see him? Absolutely. His heart is stayed toward his son who has humiliated him, who has hurt him, who has taken his name and reputation and trashed it. His heart is toward his son because he's his son and he is looking, he is yearning, he is longing, he is praying, he is wanting that son to come to the point where he comes home. Does that exercise an influence? I believe somewhere in the supernatural realm it does. His son drinks himself to pig status. What turns his heart? What does he say to himself when he comes to himself? I will return and go to my father. Somehow there is a turning of hearts it never left him. The father's heart never left his son. Somehow, eventually, in weakness, prevails, and the son turns home. That's God's heart toward us, but that works at a human level as well. Elijah, single man. So any single men are not left out of this. He doesn't send a married man to turn a father's heart. He doesn't send another father. God doesn't. He sends a single man. And Elijah was a single man, and John the Baptist was a single man. Sometimes there are tasks given to people who are single because the cost of doing what they do or are called to do may be very great, and to have a family would make them vulnerable to um, being pulled back from that call. Paul, doesn't he talk about that, about uh, marriage sometimes in, in view of the impending distress can actually be considered not that wise an idea because it makes you very vulnerable. You know, if you get arrested, what they say they're doing to your wife and children might make you very vulnerable to giving in to uh, people who put you under pressure. <clears throat> Elijah is sent first to the fathers. What does that say about Elijah's heart? His heart is turned by God towards the fathers whose heart is still turned away from their sons. Can you hear that? His heart is turned to the fathers who are not being good fathers and to the sons who are not being good sons. He is turned and he goes to turn the hearts towards one another. We're not told of how he did it. There's obviously communication involved. There's obviously compassion involved. There's a whole range of things that are involved. But his heart is turned towards fractured families. You know, why should the church be filled with middle-class, two-parent, two-children families? As if that's all the gospel's good enough for. 
The gospel has the power of God to save really broken people. I hope you'll believe that by the time that we finish this afternoon. He goes when he's sent. He's not a volunteer. And it says uh, in the angel's prophetic word about John the Baptist that he would be anointed from his mother's womb. He is anointed to do what he is sent to do. I think those things are very important. It's getting hot, isn't it? (laughs) (coughs) When he's asked about who he is, some people will be thinking, is this the Christ or is it Jeremiah or is it Elijah or who is this? When John the Baptist started to preach, do you remember what he said about who he was when he was asked? Who are you? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's how he saw the situation. A wilderness relationally, a wilderness in terms of family relationships. It's a lonely place to be, Elijah's place, John the Baptist's place. In fact, both were persecuted. Ahab tried to get him killed for many years until the big confrontation on Carmel, which we'll come to. And John the Baptist was actually beheaded for what he was saying. He was rebuking Herod and his brother's wife, whom he shouldn't have married, Herodias. And all the manipulation went in to getting John the Baptist killed by Herodias. Lonely place. Elijah doesn't bring a promise that it's all going to be hunky and dory, that the father's heart's going to be turned and the son's heart's going to be turned, and they're going to be, big hug, you know, reconciled to each other. That's not promised. And it's not required for the curse to be averted. What is, according to God, required is that the father's hearts are turned to the children. Some of these will be dead, okay? Some of them will not want to come back. But... What triggers God's mercy is that the hearts turn. There's a willingness to reach out in the heart. That is, there's a willingness to embrace the pain of facing that situation. You know the story that Floyd McClung, who died recently, tells of a young man from a village in China. And he... um, left the village and went to the big cities and got involved in this, that, and the other and gradually got into one of the tongs, you know, the gangs. Um, He became involved in prostitution, robbery, violence, all sorts of things until he offended some of his so-called mates and his own life became at the point of being at risk. And he had nowhere to go or to consider going to escape, being killed himself. But to the only place that he knew, he'd known safety, which was where? His father. So he wrote his father, said, Dad, you know I've done lots of bad things. And the father was a believer, and and father did know he'd been up to a lot of skullduggery. And he said, look, I need to come home. If you will receive me home, would you put a white handkerchief on the big bush in our back garden, which the uh, train came round the back of his garden, and it was the garden beside the railway train. So anybody coming in the train was looking down into this family's garden. Put a white handkerchief on the bush, the big bush in our backyard, and I know you'll take me home. He got on the long train journey home, and sitting opposite him was an elderly gentleman. And the elderly gentleman um, got into conversation with him because he saw that the young fellow was very agitated. And little by little, the old boy coaxed the story out of him. And as they were coming into the final junction uh, to drop off, people who were getting off at the village that he lived in, the young fellow became very agitated and didn't want to look out of the window. And he said to the old man, look, I don't dare look. Will you please look out of the window for me? 
he was so nervous about whether or not he would be received. And they came round the last curve, and the old gentleman looked out and said to the young man, you can look. And he looked, and there was these massive white sheets all over the tree, over the bush. Do you understand? A heart turned toward his son that ultimately allowed the son's heart to turn towards him and come home. Isn't it interesting that the destiny of the nation, according to Malachi, hangs on this turning of the heart? It's an embracing of pain. It's an embracing of difficulty. It's a facing of reality that many of us don't want to actually do. But it is effective in God's sight. If God sees a willingness, he sees a willingness for us to turn our hearts in the right direction. He responds to that. He sees it as a harbinger of something that could be. Final person in the middle of all of this, and if you could come over with me again just here, <coughs> to about there, is God himself. God sends Elijah. I will send Elijah. There are references to John the Baptist being sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord. God sent. Why does God send? What does that tell you? Some amazing things. First is he chooses to work through another human being, single guy, to effect the change over here that will be a blessing to that society. He chooses to work through, as they're calling it here, ordinary Jews, somebody who is willing to go. He doesn't choose to directly zap the guys. It's not that he's not working, but he chooses to work through an intermediary to prepare the way of the Lord. That interesting? Am I willing, are you willing, to be that towards somebody else? <clears throat> being prepared to be the one that goes. That's the first thing. He works through his servants. The mystery of incorporating us in his mission. As I said, his servants don't have an easy journey on this. Um, and it can be very difficult and very dangerous. But the reason God sends Elijah is what? Why does God send Elijah? Absolutely. His heart is not to curse. His heart is not to dump a whole pile of judgment on people or on a nation. His heart is to give them every opportunity while there is hope to turn. God's heart is turned towards the Father whose heart is, at this point, turned away from his Son. That means none of us can escape. If that's true for the father whose heart's turned away from his son, is it not true for those whose hearts are turned towards their son? God's heart is turned towards fathers. He is the father. God longs to see this sort of renewal and reconciliation. That's why the parable of the prodigal son is there. He doesn't want to judge if he can possibly avoid us Avoid it, and he wants to save whoever is willing in the end to be saved, whoever is willing to have their heart turned. And he will use both direct influence and indirect influence from the person that he sends to try and give opportunity for these guys to turn to each other. He wants men to turn to him. In the Luke passage, it says, and to turn the hearts of many who are disobedient the wisdom of the just. Not everybody is turned, but it can be many. I'd like to see many guys' hearts turned back like that. I think it'd be absolutely incredible. Um, there are no Oscars been given, but would you give them a round of applause for their brilliant... Thank you. <laughs> purpose of doing that is to try and get a picture to stick in your mind that you can ponder because it's hard to take all of this in. Why Elijah? Why did God want to send Elijah? 
I mean, Elijah wasn't a father. He had no history of family. You know, we're not even told the name of his father, which is unusual for the prophets. Most of the prophets are the son of so-and-so. But in the Old Testament, Elijah is not named as having a father, just that he came from Tishbe. So why Elijah? For example, why not Abraham? He would have been a good choice. I mean, in Romans, he's called the father of those who are circumcised and the father of those who are uncircumcised, who come to faith, who believe. He's described as the father of many nations and the father of us all. All those descriptions in Romans 4. Wow. Do you know who Abraham was? Abraham was from an incestuous family. I've had a deal with incestuous families at work, quite a number of them, more than I would like to recount, where it's a generational problem that goes back and what has happened from one generation goes on to the next and is normalized and the children are born into that and so on. Very, very difficult to break those sorts of things. Abraham came from an incestuous family. I'm going to prove it. Who was he married to? Sarah. He was his wife, but also his half-sister, Genesis 20:12, as he tells Abimelech. She's not the same mother, but the same father. So Terah had two wives, or two women. And Abraham married his half-sister. That's brother-sister incest. Abraham had two brothers, Nahor and Haran, in that order. Haran was the one that died early. But Nahor married Haran's oldest daughter. Haran had three children, Milcah, Iscah, and Lot, whom we'll come to in a minute. And Haran married Milcah. That's Genesis 11, I think. You can check that one out. Um, but it's there. And down the line of Haran, the third and youngest son, <coughs> Haran died. Lot came with Abraham. And after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot fathered children by both his daughters. Now, it's an unusual circumstance in that the daughter seems to have initiated it according to the biblical records so that they would have descendants, <coughs> which is not necessarily the motivations you find in the West, but it was a motivation then to have descendants because you have someone then to look after you when you're old. And down the three sons of Terah, Abraham, Haran, sorry, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, there is an incestuous line which tells me that that family had normalized incest. Granted, this was before the law came in Exodus that forbade incest. So it was not done while they were under the law. It was done before it, and where the law wasn't, accountability wasn't applied. But even when you get to Exodus and the law about incest, the man who wrote that down was Moses. And Moses' mother was the aunt of his father. Exodus 3, I believe it is, Amram and Jochebed. And it, it, the text says that Jochebed was an aunt or a brother's daughter or something like that to Amram, whom she married. A lot of incest about. Isn't it interesting that God can call somebody out of that sort of family setting and still be willing to use them? I found that very faith-building when I realize that that's what it said, because it meant you have something to say from the Word of God to families who are in that situation. And the children were in it through no fault of their own. And maybe their parents were in it through no fault of their own. They were born into that situation, but then decided to go with the flow, which they are responsible for. Another contender could have been Solomon. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, and in the book of Proverbs, 23 times, you have the phrase, my son, my sons, scattered through the whole book of Proverbs, but particularly the first few chapters, but right the whole way through the book of Proverbs. And it's the communication of a father to his sons about many things. In the book, there's a chapter about three of the big things that Solomon uh, says a father should communicate to his sons about. One is peer group pressure which most parents are concerned about. Another is boy-girl relationships and how you form a relationship that lasts. And the third one is the transmission of the faith to the next generation. 
interesting. And if you don't believe me, you have to buy the book, because I can't go into that now. The wisdom that the man had about family, the problem with Solomon was he didn't walk it. He didn't do it. Uh, somebody said he had 400 wives and 600 porcupines. Okay, 10 minutes. Oh, I need to skip a bit out. All right. There are reasons why Elijah was called. And I want to give you what I think is the final reason. If you want to see the other scans in the book. Just before Elijah appeared in the first verse of 1 Kings 17, the end of 1 Kings 16, there's the story of a man called Heel of <coughs> Bethel who rebuilt Jericho at the cost when he laid its foundations of his oldest son and when he put in the gates at the cost of his second son, his youngest son. He sacrificed his two sons as part of what they did. The bones would have been put in the foundations of the wall and the wall built on that as some sort of appeal to pagan gods for blessing or protection of his city. But that was the curse that Joshua put on Jericho when he wrecked the place at God's command. In Joshua 6.26, that the person who rebuilt Jericho would do so at the cost of his oldest and youngest sons. Do you think sacrifice of children is a common thing? Well, let me tell you, in our society, on average every day, sorry, this is England and Wales, on average every day, there are 560 abortions on average every day of the year. 209,000 abortions the last year, there were records. Does God have an opinion about that? Every one of those babies had a mother, but every one of those babies had a father. Some of the fathers did not even know they had fathered those children. Some of those fathers may have wanted those children to live, but the mother said, I'm making the choice. Some of those fathers may have pressurized the woman into having the abortion in the first place. We've dealt with all of those. The situations where the hearts of fathers in our society need to be turned towards their children with the promise of potential blessing or the warning, if we don't, we're in a serious place. The hard situations. We've run a group for separated dads, dads who are no longer with the mother of their children, who want to have contact with their children, who may have some contact agreed by the courts or agreed by the mother. In some cases, the courts don't allow the contact. In some cases, the mother has disappeared, they don't have any contact. They want contact. In some cases, the children don't want contact. Complex picture. And we are on a group for these guys so that we could help them point their hearts towards their children. You understand why now, okay? If those guys who are separated, who have children but have little or no contact or they're dissatisfied with the contact, or the situation, if they can keep their hearts soft towards their children, they predispose God to act in mercy towards that nation, if there's enough of them. The easiest thing is, well, stuff this. She doesn't want me, I can, she can bring them up herself, you know. I'm not paying for them. The easiest thing is to harden one's heart in that situation. And I'll tell you further, to keep your heart soft towards your children is bound to also mean keeping your heart tender towards their mother, regardless of what you've done to her or regardless of what she has done to the father. Regardless. There may be a lot of repentance needed. We dealt with a number of guys who sired kids all around the countryside, went from one vulnerable family to another, to another, to another. Sometimes they were just interested in the woman. Sometimes they're interested in the woman's children. That's happening. So the turning of hearts of guys who have little contact, who are going to be embracing pain, who are going to be embracing difficulty, to stay in that place of faith and believing for better, 
that in itself will predispose the child's heart to potentially turn to seek their father. Okay? Um, there are programs on TV, um, what do you call the girl who does it where they hunt down it's, uh, children who've been adopted? Okay? Pardon? Yes, Davina McCall. And she and another guy who himself has adopted, Nick, somebody or other, yes, they actually help track down adopted children and reunite with their parents on the motivation of either. There's a turning of one heart to the other in those situations. That's one group. Second a group, abortion. If 560 dads lose their child every day on average in England and Wales, 560. That's a massive turning of hearts away from children. Oh, but they're only wee blobs of, yeah. No, they're not. They're wee boy blobs or wee girl blobs, folks. Your gender's determined at conception. That's a turning away of the heart. The mother's heart may well be turned away as well. We work with women who have had abortions and regretted it. Many of them would have kept their child outside of wedlock in many cases. Many would have kept their child if their father would have supported them. They felt they'd no option when the father says, I don't want to have anything to do with you now. Walked away. That's fathers who turned their hearts away from responsibility, financial responsibility, parenting, faithfulness to the mother who bore their child. Guys, this is a big, big issue. Third group that we work with is child sex offenders. That's why I left work to do some of the stuff I do. I work with an organization called Release in Dublin, which is the equivalent of Prison Fellowship down there. And they have a team working in Arbor House, which is the pre-release prison for sex offenders down south. And they've seen a number of these guys come to faith. Will the church receive them? Very difficult scenario to envisage and to work. But they work with these guys and we have developed a course to try and help them face all the issues that are involved in their sin and their offending that have got them to where they are and seek to build a whole different heart and spirit in them. Soul-destroying work, I agree. But if those guys and the dads of children who are boarded and the dads who are separated from their children, if those groups would turn their hearts, allow God to turn their hearts, I think that would have great power in God's eyes in bring his mercy towards the land. In other words, those groups of guys, if they would face up to their situation, would have massive influence in the land in an unseen way. Final group, and then if there's a question, we'll take it. <clears throat> a lot of people have a reasonably good family. Would you consider befriending, fostering, adopting, a child that doesn't have any family or has a really broken, bad family, a dangerous family. Would you consider that? Turning the hearts. It, let me put it this way. In um, Malachi passage, it says, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, i.e. their own. And look, it says that John the Baptist would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. In fact, there's no the. Turn the hearts of fathers to children. In other words, it's not just your own. A heart that goes out beyond that, a heart that's going to try and do something in this situation. It may be that you do what Elijah did. You befriend a single parent family. You dads become a role model, not to exploit the woman or for any other reason, but just to be a help to that family to help them survive. We have, what, over 20 guys here if everyone was able to do that in a good spirit towards a single parent family, that'd be 20 single parent families supported by the folk in this room. That's doable. That's doable. And look where it got Elijah. That was his starting point. I think this is the biggest issue that we're facing. Our world is corrupting. Our world is turning away from family, turning away from uh, 
sexuality that God created us to have, turning away from even the recognition of male and female as male and female, turning away from, the next thing would be imageness. We will not acknowledge that we are created in the image of God, as many already think. We are created in the image of animals, so we behave like animals. What does God want you to do? He doesn't want you to become a light overnight. He doesn't want me to become a light overnight. I think he's got the capacity to have a lot of little Elijahs, little John the Baptist, doing their little bit to turn the hearts of fathers to the children. But do I think this is a key issue for our society? Absolutely. Absolutely. And at churches, we need to take it on. Okay. We'll pray, but if anybody wants to raise something, please do so. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. We really hope and pray that God's Word has spoken to your heart and that His Holy Spirit has empowered you to go out and be an effective man, that people would look at you and really take note that you've been with Jesus. If we can help you or your church in any way in engaging and in reaching men, both inside and outside the church, this is a huge need in our time and in our world at this moment please go on to our website rumble.vision and send us an email reach out to us we would love to get a coffee and to talk to you about some of the things that we have that can help you at a local level but we do hope that you can join us again soon for our next episode be blessed and we'll see you again soon